You're listening to the Hillspring Church audio podcast. Hillspring exists so that all people can find and embrace a life of faith through Christ. For more information or to get involved, visit us on the web at hillspringchurch.org. Well, we're starting the year by looking at passages and stories that reveal God's mercy. Rather than than starting with what we call a do-better mentality. Sure, there are are times when when personal effort needs to be emphasized. We just talked about the fact that you get what you put out, what you put into community, right? That if you want to know people, you also have to put yourself out there to get to know people. And as the church is continuing to grow larger and larger, then actually, you know, we do our best to get to know you, but it becomes harder and harder for a few of us on staff to get to know everyone who's coming in. So we all have to work together to make that happen and to grow in fellowship, right? But that's not what I mean when I say that we need to be careful not to make the mistake of starting this year with a do-better mentality. You know, what, I'm, what I mean is that we need to be careful not to begin the year thinking that uh, our successes or our failures determine our worth or our acceptance before God. And sure, you may say, oh, I know the gospel. I know that that's not true. But the reality is that this creeps into the way that we think quite often. And as we start the year, you know, the whole idea of resolutions is I kind of botched things up last year, and so I'm going to make a resolution to do better in a particular area of life this year. And that type of thinking often gets applied to our faith that, you know, I messed up my relationship with God last year. He's probably really upset with me. And so I need to try harder this year to repair what I broke last year. And that's simply not true. Our value and our acceptance is not determined by who we are, but rather who God is. Life always begins with him. He's the one who makes something out of our lives. Our lives, we don't find life because we somehow pull our lives together and achieve a great life. That's just not how it works. Everything good begins with him. The story of creation is a perfect example. There's this chaos or there's nothing. God brings things from disorder into order and everything is good. Right, And it's the same in our own lives, that it's only as we turn to him that God brings order out of disorder. He gives us mercy and makes something good out of our lives. It's only as we depend on his mercy that good things grow in our lives. And these are, are what? The fruits of the Spirit, right? There's something that happens that you can't make fruit grow. Has anyone ever made a pear grow? You know, you might have planted a tree, but are you the one that made a, a, a pear happen? right? You know, in our relationship with God, it's all we can do is just give our lives over to him. And then something happens when we trust in his mercy that suddenly things grow in our lives that are beautiful. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? They all grow out of the mercy of God in our lives. And this is what I've seen in the church over the years, that a do-better mentality never results in good things. It just never does. Whenever a church is just so focused on the law and saying, you know what, if you want to be you know, in a good relationship with God, this is what you need to do. Do this, do this, do this. What I find are, are people who know all the things that they should do. Often they don't do them, but they use those things as a metric to judge and evaluate the lives of others around them. And it causes, to, causes division and disunity in the church. And so we're starting this year focusing on the mercy of God because it's God's mercy that gives us life and changes our lives. And we've looked at a number of examples so far. We've looked at the parable of the unmerciful servant, which revealed the unlimited nature of God's mercy, that no matter how great our debt, no matter how many times we fail, God forgives us at his own expense. 
Last week, we looked at Paul's own struggle with sin, concluding that when we find ourselves doing the very things that we don't want to do, and I share with you a little bit about my own human dysfunction. You know, when the guilt of failure comes knocking, it's the mercy of God that rescues us, disarming the power of sin over our lives. And this morning, I want to talk to you about something else. I want to talk to you about the voices in your head. Now, not audible voices. I don't know if you have those. We can talk about that, you know, in another room or another environment. But the truth is we all have voices in our head, messages that we carry around which shape our sense of worth. And you know the ones that I'm talking about. These are the voices that they point out your failures. They, they compare you to others. They condemn you and they, they shape your identity in powerful and often destructive ways. Unfortunately, religion is where this voice comes from for a lot of people. A do-better mentality uh, found in a lot of Christian religion is where this comes from for a lot of people. And by religion, I am talking about the form of spirituality that tells you you must do better in order to earn God's love. Throughout our lives, the, the voice of religion will speak to you over and over again. Now, I can only speak as someone who's grown up in the church, but I tend to think that if you grew up in the church, that sometimes this voice speaks even louder to you. And it has the intent of destroying you, telling you that you're a failure, telling you that you are unworthy, telling you that God can't love you the way that you are. As a pastor, this voice speaks really loud to me really regularly saying, you know, what are you doing, you know, in the position of a pastor? right? Pointing out all of my flaws and failures. I know what it's like. I've, I have voices that condemn me for past decisions, voices that tell me I'm not good enough. And this is the voice of religious effort. It can be shaped by religious uh, figures in your life. Maybe people who represented God it could be a, a mother or a father who shaped the way that you understand faith in Christ. It could be a past Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, a pastor, someone you watched on TV. Uh, I don't know where it may come from, but many of us, if not all of us, have the voice of religious effort in our minds. And the enemy of God works through these voices, yet what makes them so convincing is that they seem to speak with the authority of God himself. But they're so destructive and left unaddressed you may be in a spiritual environment and be robbed of joy in life altogether because your faith and your religion only speaks to you and tells you that you're not good enough rather than giving you the life that Christ said he came to give you. So this morning, many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You may feel beaten down and discouraged because of these messages that point out your failures and tell you that you're worthless. And so this morning, I want to look at a story with you about a woman whose failures in life were addressed by two different voices. The first voice in her life was the voice of religion, or we'll say religious effort, just so you don't think I'm, you know, ragging on religion too much. Just a little bit. And the second voice is the voice of God. But my hope is that if you came in this morning feeling condemned by the voice of religion, that you'd leave encouraged by the voice of God. Because the voice of God speaks a message of hope and peace to the downtrodden and the brokenhearted. And I hope that's the voice that you hear this morning. 
So this story is found in the book of John, chapter 8, beginning at verse 2. I'm going to invite you to, to turn there with me now, and I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to speak to us this morning and open our hearts and our ears and our minds to actually hear his voice in the midst of all these other voices. God, I thank you that you are not a silent God. I thank you that you are God who has spoken clearly to us through your son. And I, I pray this morning that you would not only encourage us through your voice, but you would also equip us by your voice to be able to discern a voice that is true and a voice that is full of lies. And you would give us the faith to embrace your voice, to listen to your voice alone, God, and, and brush off all of the other messages that we that are going on in our hearts and our minds on a regular basis, God. So lead us this morning. Speak to us and help us to hear you, we pray in your name. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 2, John writes, At dawn he, meaning Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And so in these first few verses, the scene is set, and Jesus is teaching in a religious environment in the temple courts. It was the open area outside of the temple and while he was teaching, the voice of religion shows up. And these were the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, a religious sect who was very passionate and devoted to the law or the scriptures. And these were the religious leaders in society who, who took it upon themselves to speak on behalf of God. At least that's who they believed they were speaking for. Now, these were people who knew the scriptures inside and out. And this is the first you know, caution or warning to us is that just because someone knows the Bible and has knowledge of scripture inside and out doesn't mean that they're speaking on behalf of God. And just because you know the Bible inside and out doesn't necessarily mean that you're using it to represent the voice of God. These people knew the scriptures more than, I would say, more than anyone in this room, highly likely. You know, it's been said that in Jewish culture, back in ancient Jewish culture, that uh, by the age of 10, I believe it was, that, that, the, that the Jewish person would learn the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, memorize them. Can you imagine memorizing like Numbers and Leviticus, Right? You know, we think that we know Scripture if we've memorized a few verses over the years, right? But these people knew their Bible inside and out. And they spent their days debating over religious matters and holding people accountable to that which they believed God was saying through Scripture. And so as Jesus was teaching, not only do they show up in the middle of what's going on, but they have a woman with them. Someone that they caught in the act of adultery. And they drag her out and they make her stand in front of Jesus and those who were teaching, declaring to, to Jesus and before everyone there that this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She was guilty, and she was, right? 
I don't, we don't know how they found this woman. We don't know if they set her up for this whole scenario. And they obviously were looking for her. They found her. They dragged her out. How would you feel if your worst sin was exposed in such a way? You know, imagine if in the middle of the service, your photo appeared on the screen. And beside your photo, just big words, guilty. And then below the words guilty, it listed the worst sins in your life. Your biggest moral failures displayed in front of everyone else here. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be humiliating? Right. Well, this is what happened or was happening to this woman. But this was just the beginning. They continue to say, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. In other words, based on this woman's failure and based on our reading of Scripture, we say she isn't worthy to live. This is what the voice of religion says to us often, doesn't it? The Bible says this, therefore you're guilty. Therefore, you should be ashamed. Therefore, you are not like other people. You are a failure. And you aren't worthy of life in Christ. This is what these religious leaders were saying about this woman, saying what they believed to be the voice of God. And then they look at Jesus and they ask, now what do you say? We've said what we think. What do you say, Jesus? But as John explains as a side note in verse 6, he says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And so there's more going on. I mean, yes, we hear this encounter where we see this woman addressed by two different voices, but their actions weren't only about enforcing judgment. They were trying to catch Jesus. In fact, they wanted him dead. They hated Jesus for his mercy because in doing so, they felt that, that Jesus was contradicting what they thought was the word of God. And the question was meant to see if Jesus would enforce judgment properly. Would he hold to the scriptures or would he waver? Would he compromise the truth. And there are pastors today who will go off saying, you know what, you know, people are just compromising the truth. They don't preach the word of God unapologetically anymore. But it's in this response to her sin where the two voices collide. The voice of religion had spoken very clearly and it had challenged Jesus head on. All that's left is to wait and to see how Jesus will respond. What do you say, Jesus? John explains that Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. He held back on his response. We don't have any idea what he wrote. Some like to speculate. The truth is we just, we don't know. I like to think that he was just holding off, maybe giving them the false illusion that they had trapped him, that he, that they, that he didn't have an answer for them. We know that they persisted. Maybe they were standing over him like, Jesus, come on. Well, where's your answer? What do you have to say about that? She was, she's guilty. She's not worthy of life. What do you have to say? And in verse 7, we read that when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And this is such a profound and powerful response to the voice of religion. The message was clear as well. Because there was no one there who didn't sin. 
There was no one there who didn't also fall short in some way, which meant that they didn't have the authority to judge because they were all guilty of sin. The voice of their religious judgment held no authority in this woman's life. Because they were guilty as well, how could they judge? See, see, the voice of religion only claims to speak on behalf of God, but as Jesus pointed out to them at another time, through their destructive intent, they revealed their true master, which Jesus said was the devil himself. The devil's uh, mission was being accomplished through religion itself. The voice of religion, the voice that says your successes and failures determine your worth, isn't the voice of God at all. It isn't the truth. But there was someone in the crowd who didn't sin, and that was Jesus. Not just another man, not just another religious figure or religious leader. Jesus was the voice of God. He is described as the word of God made flesh. Jesus is the voice of God. He is how God has spoken to us in this world. And the first thing that Jesus said was that it wasn't just the woman who had sinned, but rather all had sinned. And what this meant for the woman and what it means for for you is that your failures don't make you less than everyone else. It actually makes you like everyone else. One of the greatest lies when you have sin in your life is to begin thinking that you are abnormal that you are the one who has those failures, that you are the one who has those flaws, and that, you know, if only you could get your act together like the pastor, well, I don't ever claim to have my act together, but, you know, I hope you, maybe you think that, right? Or by the people that you see around you, other people, other Christians that you know, you're like, you know what? Everything in their marriage just seems perfect all the time. You know, what's wrong with me and my marriage? Whatever it might be. So one of the greatest lies when you have sin is to begin thinking that you are abnormal, that you're unlike everyone else, that you're worse than everyone else around you, which is what makes you fear being exposed and it actually leads you to hide your sin rather than than confess it and, and receive mercy from people around you, which actually begins the process of healing. But you are not unlike everyone in this room. You are like everyone in this room. We have all sinned. We all fall short. And it's a lie that you're less than and unlike everyone else. And so if you're new this morning and you maybe you built up the courage to walk into a church for the first time this morning, you need to understand that you're not a, a sinner standing in the room of perfect Christians. We all fall short. And so you're, you're among fellow human beings who hopefully depend on the mercy of God. And it's through that mercy that our lives are changed for good. Well, this voice of God, the voice that, uh, the things that God spoke through Christ, it disarmed the voice of religion. And in verse nine, we read that at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And the truth, the true voice of God disarms the, the, the religious message of do better theology, right? It, it disarms it because it has no authority over your life anymore because it, it, it brings us all down to the same level. No one can speak in your life. No voice can speak to you and say you are lesser than anyone else. We all fall short. And so they all went away one at a time. And the only one left was Jesus with the woman standing there. What would Jesus say to her? 
Now she was, now she was standing before the, the only one who did have the authority to judge her. But in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Not one, sir, she said. And this could go, I mean, in our minds, it could go anyway, really, right? But Jesus responded, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, the, the crowd didn't condemn her because Jesus made it clear that they didn't have the authority to do so. But Jesus didn't condemn her either, but there's a big difference between his lack of condemnation and their attempts at condemnation and then being pointed out that they didn't have the authority to do so. Because when Jesus said that he didn't condemn her, it wasn't because he shared in her sin. You know, he was perfect. When Jesus didn't condemn her, it was out of his love. And out of his mercy, it was out of his good character that he withheld judgment. Now, where is the voice of religion, the voice of the devil, the voice of the enemy intended to destroy her? God intended to give her life. Now, all the voice of her enemy wanted to use her sin against her. God wanted to save her from her sin. And in fact, through the voice of God, we learn that even in her sin, she was loved and valued by him. And you are as well. So this is the voice that I hope so much that you hear this morning. Even though the voice of religious effort may have been speaking to you, trying to bring you down and destroy you by pointing out your failures and using them against you. God uses that same sin to show you his mercy, to, to reveal his mercy to you, to show his love to you that you might know that despite your sin, that even while you were sinners, Christ died for you. That is the voice of God. Well, Jesus finished by saying, go and leave your life of sin. You might be like, well, isn't that a do-better mentality? That is what he said, but we need to hear that final sentence through the voice of God not through the voice of religious effort. But that wasn't said, God doesn't expect us to do what is right because we're condemned if we don't. God calls us to do right for two reasons. First of all, because he created us to be a reflection of his character. And so when he calls us to do what is right, he's calling us to live out our intended purpose in this world. And the second reason is because that is what saves us from things that hurt us. I mean, they are they are connected. When we don't live the way that we are created to live, we are broken, dysfunctional, and that hurts us, right? If you start removing parts from your car and you try to drive it down the street, it's not going to work the way that it's intended. It's going to break down and cause a lot of problems. And so when God calls us to, to leave our life of dysfunction and brokenness behind, it's not because he's saying, you know, if you don't do better, you're condemned. I'm going to condemn you and judge you. He's saying, you know what? You're, 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 your sin or every time you veer from the way that I've created you, it's hurting you. And it's hurting your relationships with those around you. And so, you know what, in, in view of my mercy, trust me. I'm here, I'm for you, I'm not against you. I love you, I wanna lead you in good things. And so I'm, I'm calling you to take my hand and let me lead you through life and show you a good way to live so that your life can be whole. And as you live a life that's whole, then your life automatically becomes a reflection of his good character. 
Our relationship with God always begins with his mercy. It's his mercy that, that shows us that he's a good father. And obedience is part of our relationship that he made possible through his mercy. So if the voice of religious effort has been loud in your mind lately, my prayer is and my hope is that the voice of God would silence those other voices this morning. Your sin doesn't make you less or unlike anyone else. It doesn't make you unlovable. It makes you like everyone else. We all fall short. Yet God has spoken through his son clearly to tell you that he doesn't condemn you for your sin. He forgives you. And then he calls you to leave your sin behind because it's not how you earn his love. It's how he leads you and guides you to embrace life in him. Would you stand with me? Let's pray, and then Christine's going to lead us in a song. And I just want to encourage you to spend some time with God as we close in this last couple of minutes, just to spend time with God and ask God to just let God speak to you this morning. Let God to affirm the message that he said to you this morning. Let him use that message to silence those other voices in your head. And my hope is that you can go away encouraged by the voice of God this morning. God, we thank you so much for your word. And God, we, we, we know that somehow you spoke throughout the whole Bible and some of that's confusing, but we are thankful that you've spoken perfectly through your son. And we can know the truth through your son and it's only through your son that we can even read the rest of the Bible and understand what you're trying to say. You are a God of mercy. You are a God of love. You are a God of truth that wants to lead us in truth. Speak to every heart here this morning, God. Remind them of your love and your mercy, we pray. And as we all just hand our lives over to you and abandon ourselves to your mercy this morning, God, we thank you that you will cause good things to grow out of our lives as a result of us simply trusting you. So speak to us and lead us this morning, we pray. Amen.